here we go. Um, so, like Carrie said, Broken People, Unbreakable Grace, that's the series that we're in. We started last week by um, looking at Adam and Eve and Genesis chapters 1 through 3. And in those chapters, we saw how valuable, we saw the incredible worth that each person has before God. You have, and I have, and somebody lives across the street from you, somebody lives on the other side of the world, the worth that they have because they're created in the image of God. Now, here's the tricky part. That worth does not negate the consequences of Adam and Eve's actions in the garden when they try to define good or our actions when we try to define good, when we try to be self-sufficient apart from God, when we try to set ourselves up as God. And there were consequences to those actions. And what we see in Genesis uh, chapters 4 and 5 is some of those consequences. Now, Adam and Eve have children. That's not a consequence. That's a good thing. Um, And they have two boys, Cain and Abel. Cain ends up killing Abel because Abel gave God a better gift, right? We see these consequences start to take effect. Just like Adam and Eve were put out of the garden, Cain is put out of direct contact with the family in that circumstance. Um, But God doesn't leave him alone. God protects him and gives gives him his hand. Time goes by. Cain sets up a city. He has children. A couple generations down the line, a man named Lamech is born. And um, some scholars, I think maybe naively so, think that uh, in the text, it's only like four or five verses we read about Lamech, that he was just setting up a system of justice. Um, In my opinion, and in some other scholars, I think he was just super violent and proud about being violent. He's also the first polygamist in the Bible. When God established everything, he said, one man, one woman, that's marriage. And Lamech came along and said, I want two wives. And he decided what was good for himself. Um, and his, so Lamech had sons. And his sons, again, we have the image of God in us. So we're capable of great good. His sons invent music. They invent metallurgy. They're the first ones to um, herd, to have livestock and to, and to herd. Um, but at the same time, right, people continue to try to define good for themselves. And um, the text tells us that corruption and violence grew, and it broke God's heart. It broke his heart to the extent that God decided he needed to set, re- hit the reset button, or as some scholars suggest, the recreate button. And that's where we meet Noah, and that he's the next character that we're going to look at in our, in our overview of the, of the Old Testament. Now, the account of, of Noah and the, and the flood and his family um, is both biblical history on one hand, in that it really happened, and it's also a literary work, in that there's some uh, specific structure to it, and there's some artistry to it. So as we put those things together, and the fact that we are doing an overview, the style of writing that we're reading and studying, and the style of teaching is going to prohibit us from answering every single one of the the how questions. I also think, just like in the creation accounts, um, I think there's supposed to be some mystery here. We're not supposed to be able to get our brains around the whole whole thing. Um, But what we will be able to figure out from this account of Noah and the flood is that our big idea, and what I want you to leave with today, is that God remembers you. Right? God remembers you. Three words, short, sweet, God remembers you. 
and we're going to start. I said it was a literary work, right? I'm going to teach us a literary term. I think I may have brought this up when we were in Psalms at the very beginning of lockdown, and that word is chiasm. Sometimes it's written chiasmus. It comes from the Greek letter chi. looks like R-X, right? And you don't really need to remember the term or anything, but it's important in that um, it's really cool because the story of Noah is actually written this way. And what a chiasm is, is it's like this mirror effect where um, if you can see that, there's, there le- each one of those statements is lettered. The very first one is lettered A. The last one is lettered A prime. I'm going to wait just a second. Um, is lettered A prime. That means that those two statements mirror each other. Right? The first one is that God resolved to destroy humanity because of, it was an act of judgment. The last one is God resolves. There's the, like it's those words, right? Those words, those mirror words. God resolves never to destroy humanity through a cataclysmic flood again. And each one of those statements have this mirror effect, and they build to that statement in the middle. God remembers Noah, right? And that gives us a pretty good idea of what this section of Scripture, Genesis 6 through 9, is drawing us to, is pointing us to. So I'm going to take us through these statements. If you can't read that, I apologize, but you get to see them. I'm not going to you know, go into detail on each one of them. Some of them I will just read. Others I will try to draw out a little more detail so we understand what's going on. All right. Um, so we start. God resolves to destroy the human race, right? Let's, and we're going to read uh, Genesis chapter 6. is starting in verse 9 if you're following along. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. All right. God resolves, this sounds crazy, right? This sounds harsh. God resolves to destroy the human race, save Adam or Noah and his, his family. And the, the text tells us itself, there's some New Testament passages that refer back to Noah, and this is an act of God's judgment. We don't like that word. We don't think anybody should judge us, and we don't think anybody has that ability. But that is, um, ju- that is exactly what is happening here. And when I, think, when I think about the concept of judgment, I, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't make me glad, right? But it gives me some solace and some encouragement to think about the fact that God is not only perfectly just, right? He's not sitting up there waiting to just drop the hammer and, and render, his, render punishment. God is perfectly just. He is perfectly loving. He's perfectly graceful. He's perfectly omniscient. So if there were a being who was capable of rendering perfect judgment in a way that we should and could be okay with, I mean, it takes some work. Like, this is harsh stuff. But God is perfect, man, mind-blowingly perfect in his existence. So if there's somebody who's going to render judgment, I'm going to trust God to do it. Um, All those perfect characteristics mean that when he acts, his acts are also perfect. I found this quote that hopefully will help us understand this a little bit better. The story of Noah, the ark, and flood speaks an inspired and powerful message about judgment and grace that has instructed God's people throughout the ages about God's hatred of sin and his love of creation. 
Most importantly, we see God's promise never to destroy the earth again, fully realized in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, where God takes the judgment for sin upon himself, perfectly, judged, perfectly just, perfectly loving, perfectly graceful. All that stuff comes together in Jesus Christ, where God takes the judgment for sin upon himself rather than humanity. Thus, through the lens of Christ, the biblical flood story proclaims the marvelous news of God's grace and love for his people. I mentioned last week kind of in passing, but each week, um, I think without, without exception, we're going to see Jesus appear in the pages of the Old Testament. Noah is a type of Jesus. He's an imperfect image that points forward to the perfect Jesus. All right. Noah builds an ark according to God's instructions. This is B. When we get down to the bottom, we see Noah builds um, B prime. Noah builds an altar. So as you're reading scripture, looking for those words that repeat can be really helpful in helping us understand what God is doing in this passage. Like, so God inspired people to write the Bible. And I have um, complete trust in the Bible and in, and in what it says. But I'm super thankful that God chose to put things in there like the dimensions, the super specific dimensions of the ark. Based on the dimensions of the ark, that's the cubic capacity of the ark, 1,518,000 cubic feet, or 250 shipping containers, or 40,000 50-pound sheep, right? So like the specifics that all those animals that God instructed Noah to, to find and collect and to bring on the ark, it's possible to get them on a vessel that size. That just gives me confidence in the text that God thought enough to like, all right, I'm going to share the dimensions. We don't need the dimensions, right? David, are you going to go build an ark? I don't, like, I don't know, maybe. David's a pretty creative guy. He might. Um, but we don't, like, that's, I think that's there for our encouragement. So, um, the Lord commands the remnant to enter the ark, Everybody, Noah, grab your boys, get the family, get on a boat. The flood begins. I believe this really happened, right? I take God at his word. This really happened. Again, in God's goodness, as time goes on, um, we see things like archaeology supporting this. There's a man named Robert Ballard. His um, interviews with him and his work has appeared in the Washington Post and the National Geographic, and they put forth some hypotheses about what they would find um, in the, I think it's the Baltic Sea, as the lower and lower they got and, and looking for signs of this flood, right? And, and as the, they get deeper, they're finding artifacts, they're finding remnants, they're finding beams and things that they speculated they would find if something like this were to have really happened at the levels they thought it would have happened. So I take that as encouragement when we read some of this like crazy stuff in the Bible um, the other thing is that when you're talking to people, if this subject were to come up, especially when you're talking to somebody who may be a little skeptical about the Bible, like, well, there's flood stories in, in lots of ancient cultures. Um, yep. And one way to look at that is they just borrowed from each other. Or another way to look at it would be that it really happened. Everybody wrote about it. It really, it really happened. Um, so again, some, some encouragement as we look at this text. The flood prevails for 150 days. The mountains are covered. Lots of time in that boat with the animals and the family. God remembers Noah. All right, so now we're at the, the center of the, um, 
of the chiasm, right? That we're going to start working our way back, back out now to see those, those things, how they match up with their partners, their mirror images. So we saw that the flood was there for 150 days. The flood recedes for 150 days. They were together in that ark for approximately 370 days, a little bit over a year. Some of us are in, have been in, or know what it's like to be in floodwaters and hard situation for a really long time. And we can feel like God forgot about us for a really long time. Right? He doesn't forget. God remembers. Right? We're going we're gonna to dive back into that, but I, I want to like, get you guys that God remembers because I know some of your stories and I know it feels like you've been in the floodwaters for a long time and God has forgotten about you. He hasn't. He hasn't. The earth dries. A little bit more history. Right? So in the text, we read how Noah sent out different kinds of birds to, to tell if it was safe to leave the ark, to sell how far, that kind of thing. As late as the 19th century, we read about sailors and ship captains sending out ravens to, turn, to determine a direction of flight. Right? Ravens fly in a straight line to land. That's just what they do. That's how God wired them. Doves, on the other hand, doves can't fly for all that long. So if a dove goes out from a ship and it comes back, you're not close to land. If a dove goes out from a ship and doesn't return, you're pretty close. Right? And we see that's what Noah did. Those practices actually took place. They're, they're historical for us. And again, more confidence in the text. The Lord commands the remnant to leave the ark, just as he commanded to get on the ark. God commanded Noah to build an ark. They get off the ark when everything is dry. The first thing that Noah does is build an altar. I don't know about you guys, but my first reaction after I get some relief from the floodwaters, um, and I'm not proud to say it, but it's not always worship. The first thing that Noah did was he built an altar to recognize it was God that brought them through safely and that God was with them. And finally, the Lord resolves to not destroy humankind. So that's, the tech, like that's, a, that's an abridged version of Genesis 6 through 9 in that mirrored uh, chiasm form. But I want to focus on that statement that was in the middle. God remembers Noah. This theme of God remembering is we see it throughout scripture. And it doesn't just mean like, oh, hey, I remember him. Like he's there. The biblical phrase, God remembers, means that God moves into action on somebody's behalf or moved into action on somebody's behalf out of concern, out of kindness, out of care, out of love. God moves on somebody's behalf. Look at, look at this list, right? Noah and Lot, God remembered them, saved them from uh, destructive judgment. Sarah, Rachel, and Ruth. God remembered them, gave Sarah and Rachel children, gave Ruth a husband and children. The Jewish people, God um, made a covenant with the father of the Jewish people, Abraham. And when the Jewish people were languishing in Egypt, he remembered that covenant and brought them out of Egypt. This, that's not a typo, the psalmist being up there twice. That's supposed to be up there twice. The, psalm, the psalmist say, God, remember as a praise, right? He remembered us. He remembered us. He remembered us. And it's also a request. God, remember us. Remember us, God. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Zechariah, the father of 
John the Baptist, they use that phrase, God remembers, as celebration, right? When their children, when, um, when Mary's pregnant, when Zechariah's wife is pregnant, they celebrate God's memory. They celebrate his remembrances. Cornelius in the book of Acts, right? So we don't, we don't give to get, but the scripture tells us that God remembered Cornelius' acts of kindness and generosity to the poor. God remembered. And finally, this last one, I don't know if you remember playing this game as a kid, which one of these is not like the other? Babylon the Great, right? All these other things God remembers, and it's, it's a blessing. It's an act of um, provision or, or protection. Babylon the Great. So in the Old Testament, Babylon is actually a city. In the New Testament, it comes to symbolize corporate rebellion of humanity. Revelation 16, 19, I think, um, the cup of the wrath of God's judgment is poured out on Babylon the Great. We can be encouraged that God's perfect justice will be done. I mean, that's a, that's a terrifying thought at the same time, right? But for the wrongs that we've encountered, for those of us who are in Christ, the wrongs that we've encountered that our, our loved ones have experienced, they will be righted. God's justice will be perfect in when everything is done. What does this mean for us? God remembers you. God keeps his promises. God acts on your behalf out of concern and kindness, and he provides and he protects. God moves on your behalf. We can and we should use this idea of God remembering when we pray this concept, right? God, you remembered me. Thank you. God remembers. That's part of who he is. God remembers when we're in need, God, remember me. God, remember me. We, God's remembrance of us should be used in celebration, right? When, when God comes through for us, we should make note of it. Mary and Zechariah made note of it, and it got captured in the Bible. And thousands of years later, their celebration over how God remembered them is used to encourage us. When we experience God's remembrance, we should celebrate it, not just for us, but for the people who come after us so they can be encouraged that when they're in the floodwaters, they know that God remembers. And again, like I said, we don't, we don't give to get, but God does remember our, our kindnesses. He does remember our kindnesses. At the end of the flood account, God is having a conversation with Noah, and he tells him, I'm not going to do this again. Makes him a promise. In biblical terms, it's called a covenant, right? Generally, a covenant is between God and a person or people, and there are terms. It's like a contract. There are terms on each side. But in this one, it's just God. God says, I'm never going to do this again. There's, no, there's nothing required of Noah or people. Just God says, I'm not, I'm not going to do this again. And he marks it with a symbol, right? He says, when you see a rainbow, that's me remembering that's me remembering. <clears throat> so some of you, I'm, I've told this story over the course of time. Some of you will remember it. Um, I haven't told it in a long time. So if you've heard it before, just bear with me. Um, both of my boys, my boys, they're 23 and 20, um, were adopted. We adopted them at birth. And at each one, at, at a point in each one of their adoption stories, there was a period of time when it didn't look like those adoptions were going to happen. And it was 
crushing and it was heartbreaking. And I, like, I remember feeling like if this, if this is going to happen, we're going to have to move mountains to make this happen. And I remember the confusion, right, of, of not knowing how to move a mountain. I remember looking at the size of what these things were and just being exhausted at trying to move those mountains. And I just remember the pit in my stomach realizing that we couldn't move those mountains. I swear to you, I'm not making this up. And each one of those stories, each one of those processes, God sent a rainbow. In our backyard in Arkansas, it just like it came down in the backyard in Arkansas. And then like three years later, I'm driving down Reservoir Avenue right here. And the rainbow just came down over that firehouse. And within days of each one of those rainbows, there was a miraculous walk to a mailbox. There was a miraculous phone call. And God remembered us. I am not, I am not, not a rainbow kind of guy, right? <laughs> I prefer black and maybe some red occasionally. Um, but I'm all about rainbows now. All about rainbows now. Um, I want to share, <clears throat> excuse me, I want to share one more verse with you. And um, for those of us who feel or have been like we've been in the floodwaters for a long time, or maybe one of our loved ones has, or there's a situation that just won't seem to go away. Um, I hope this might bring some help and some encouragement when we think about the promise that God remembers those of us who are walking with Jesus. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. God remembers you. He remembers you in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and he moves on your behalf. God remembers you. He meets you where you are in your weakness. And in your weakness, his strength is revealed, and he moves on your behalf. God remembers you. For those of us in Christ, God gives us the gift of himself. He gives us the Holy Spirit resides with inside of us. Those of us who are in Christ now have the mind of Christ. We can think with God. The things that are important to God become important to us. The thing that breaks God's heart breaks our hearts. God gave us Holy Scripture so he could communicate to us. God gave us the gift of prayer so we could communicate to him and hear from him. God gave us each other so that when we're in the floodwaters, we have other people to help buoy us up and help us swim. That We need to keep swimming, float if we need to keep floating. God remembers you. God remembers you. God remembers you. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we thank you that every promise is yes and amen in you. We thank you that you remember. We thank you that you move into action. We thank you that we can rely upon you. God, I, I pray especially right now for those folks who are in the middle of a flood water that seems like it will not relent. God, would you make your action known to them? God, maybe that's one of us reaching out and coming alongside them. Maybe that's something miraculous. Maybe it's like, not yet, but I'm with you. God, reveal yourself in those floodwaters, please. God, remember us. In Jesus' name, amen.